Welcome to MedTech Connect, a digital health regulations podcast from MedTech Insight and Sightline. I'm your host, Hannah Daniel, U.S. regulatory reporter, and this week I'm joined by managing editor Amanda Maxwell. Every month, we sit down with experts across the industry to talk about the latest in digital health regulations, including AI, cybersecurity concerns, regulations from the EU, UK, and US, and the fight to protect medical data. New episodes publish monthly, so make sure to follow Pharma Intelligence Podcasts on SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts so that you never miss an episode. This week, we're speaking to Marcel Girong, co-founder and CEO of Cited. They've created a product called Endozyne, which is a capsule that is swallowed and then collects cells from the esophagus. These cells are then sent to Cited for biomarker analysis for early cancer diagnostics. So depending on how you look at it, this product can fall under the category of medical device, diagnostic, or even digital health product. So Marcel talks to us about global regulations for Endozyne and how his company chose to leverage the product's flexibility to gain approval and reach markets as efficiently as possible. We also talk about different market authorization requirements in the EU, UK, and US, and the use of AI in healthcare. Welcome, Marcel, to the podcast today. Before we dive into the company, um, some of the questions we have, can you tell us about yourself? Yes. Uh, thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Hannah, for having me today. So yeah, my name is Marcel. I'm chief exec and co-founder of a company called Cited. We are a company working on minimally invasive GI diagnostics. And we primarily do this in oncology indications currently. And what we mostly do is working on a tool that can be used to detect early esophageal cancer, particularly in patients suffering from heartburn and reflux symptoms. How the test works is um, instead of going through an invasive endoscopy, which has a lot of other resource implications and consequences for patients, what we do is a minimally invasive capsule sponge test where a patient swallows a small pill on a string, which goes into the stomach after a few minutes in the stomach, the pill dissolves and a small piece of sponge expands. A nurse then withdraws that after a few minutes and then it collects cells from the top of the stomach in the entire length of the esophagus. We then ship those cells to our central lab, and in the central lab, we then test those cells for abnormalities, and particularly for abnormalities which indicate the presence of Barrett's esophagus, which is a very well-characterized and known precancerous region for Barrett's esophagus. The company has been going for around three and a half years now, and very much based out of the UK building in the US right now. And as I said, main indications has been around Barrett's esophagus. And that's also really what we've been focusing on commercially in the last three years, getting the test to different use case populations out there here in the UK, very much focused on, on early cancer detection and triaging people away from endoscopy. And most recently, we've been starting to deploy the technology in slightly more exploratory spaces around inflammatory diseases and a couple of other things in the pipeline. But most advanced, we're certainly on the early cancer diagnostic side. It's a fascinating product. And indeed, I remember three and a half years ago when it was first being talked about, and there was a lot of excitement about, well, what kind of product is this? Is it a medical device? Is it an IVD? I suppose my question is, is it classified globally under the same regulations or would it Mm. be from the research you've done? Yeah, so there's a good point there. Um, one of the things we have been making very clear from the beginning in terms of regulatory strategy is to, to, to draw a very clear line between 
the cell collection modality, so the device itself, which has as a sole purpose to bring up cells, and the diagnostic side, which obviously is based and, and contingent on the indications which you would be looking at. So the technology is a combination between a medical device and IVD, and we really draw the line very clearly between them. The reason why is that we are using the device in, in some populations where we collect cells that we then do biomarker discovery on, which is not related to our existing indications. So there's a big divide between testing for one individual disease with an IVD versus just bringing up cells from the top of the stomach in the esophagus. So yeah, there's a very clear line drawn between those two and to the other part of your question, Amanda, that also translates to how we are pursuing our regulatory strategy in the US. And to what extent does it differ? Not too significantly, I would say. I think the main the main implication in the US market is that we will be able to run our diagnostic tests as a plain LDT and the devices in the process of going through 510K. Whereas here in the UK, there's different elements of the assay and the tests which are worked up to different levels of required standards under the IVDR, IVDD. And at present, with all the changes that are going on in the UK, again, if I understand correctly, your product would be regulated in the same way in the UK and the EU at the moment. But are you readying yourself for changes? We actually have. We launched a new generation of the device uh, a a few months ago and have braced ourselves for the the change in landscape in the EU to, to be as compatible as possible as early as possible. Yes, quite a challenge. (laughs) According to NICE, this appears to be a class one device, which seems surprising given that it's introduced uh, internally. Have you needed or wanted to involve a notified body? Uh, We had conversations uh, on that front, um, but the different individuals we've been talking to were fairly clear cut, um, particularly around the transient use time in, in the GI tract. And there's actually some related products or related technologies that have gone through or have a class one approach to mostly due to the fact that the amount of time they spend in the body is very limited and also a consequential adverse event is not serious in any way. So if you look at combining those two things together, at the end, it can be summarized as not really any serious adverse events and the transient use in the GI tract. I wanted to ask about to what degree could this product be classed as a companion diagnostic? Interesting question. Um, in one of the indications which we're working on, which is all around eosinophilic esophagitis, our main focus from a diagnostic perspective is predicting treatment response to a particular type or a particular category of drugs. In that instance, our desire is to go down the companion diagnostic route. For our current primary indication, Barrett's esophagus and low-grade and high-grade dysplasia, it certainly falls outside of the scope of a, of a CDX because it guides patient management in terms of you know, offering a follow-up or confirmatory endoscopy, but it has no implication on any pharmaceutical treatment, for example, which is administered yeah. to patient. You were talking about your relationship with the US and the UK, and I wondered how that worked. Excellent question. So I wouldn't say we're completely there yet, but I think we we certainly grew up in the UK trying to maneuver the UK market from various different perspectives. That's from a regulatory perspective, commercial perspective, operational perspective. And now over the last year, we've been starting to build our US strategy out and, and really trying to understand what do we want to replicate and what do we not want to replicate in the US catering for a very different audience from a provider, but also from a patient perspective and also the operational blueprint we've developed here in the UK 
will work to some extent. But Amanda, I think you're right in putting your finger on this. There's some some stark differences in these markets, not only commercially, but also operationally. Yeah, the other reason I asked about it is because of the very different regulatory requirements on both sides, but we'll come to that later. Yeah, thank you, Amanda. Um, so you said you were applying for a 510k in the US. So I just wanted to ask how that has been different. I'm kind of curious just about the testing aspect of it, because something I hear from international companies who are talking about marketing in the US is this issue of we have clinical trials, we have you know, real world data, we have efficacy. And now we need to do it again in a US population, like that's an extra step of setting up a trial in the US. Yes, that is, that is correct. I mean, that being said, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of these two, and um, we've decided not to go this path. But there are certainly several precedent 510 ks which have been able to get lower classifications through 510 k without explicitly testing it on the US population. We have been looking at those in quite some detail and length. We've decided to basically do a small test in the US with the primary intention to not fall into the same. Do you have an estimate of what the timeline looks like for getting the product to market in the US? Not currently. I mean, our plan is before the end of the year. There's other elements around getting our operational sort of structure setting up uh, up and running in the US or around laboratory. And these are all different irons in the fire, if you want to call it that way, which all have to come together before we start delivering to patients in the US. Because if you just think about the device itself, if you give the device to someone, they say, great, I can collect some cells, but what am I going to do with those cells? So you need to have the full value chain in place before you can actually start going out and offering this to physicians and patients. We really, we really see the device as a means to an end because the value in what we do purely comes from the biomass it doesn't come from you know bringing up one two three million cells and then having them sit in some preservative it's also from a reimbursement perspective in the u.s the reimbursement sits in the diagnostic test it doesn't sit in the medical device okay so now i want to turn to artificial intelligence since cited also uses ai as a part of its early cancer diagnostics so in general what does ai look like in healthcare spaces in the uk and where do we see it being used the most for me, it's always important to look at the segmentation of what sort of any AI-aided tool does in that space, because we have a lot of tools now which have been in the market and in, in different geographies, which, for example, look at electronic health records and try to do early cancer diagnosis just based on your blood labs or you know some symptom profiles which you have developed over time. Some of them are already in use. They usually fall under the classic category of digital health applications. They are not so much in the arena where we are playing, which is very much laboratory-focused testing. I think there's also a big misunderstanding of what AI really means in that context, mostly if we look at, let's say you have an algorithm, you know, which might be integrating, let's say, methylation data plus some clinical data of a patient sample and then saying whether you're positive or negative. Is that AI? Is that not AI? You know, is that just because it uses a logistic regression, for example, something we can label as AI? So if you would label it as an AI, then certainly we have a lot more AI tests out there in the world currently than we probably think, because some of the basic biostatistics methods to make sense of certain types of biomarkers has been around for, for a long time. The caveat with all of these technologies is just, you know, is, is AI on the box or is AI in the box in a way? So is there actually something done that leverages some of the developments we have been seeing in the last 10 years to improve patient management, find, I don't know, cancer earlier or, or earlier in the pathway? And I think the debate then usually goes in two different directions. You know, one of them is, oh, of course we are, you know, and it's everywhere. 
but then the probably more realistic part of that debate as well. You know, we have a lot of great proof of concepts and examples and academic publications, but the mature commercial products which are out there are very, very limited in numbers. And in some indications, probably they're more talked about than they're actually being used in clinical practice. So I think the opportunity is still very strong when it comes to making sense of electronic health records. And just the better we get at doing population health monitoring, the more data we can collect about individual patients. And there's lots of opportunities there to aid early cancer detection but if we go down the patient pathway if it's really about individual tests and making sense of that data it's really on a case-by-case basis whether they fit into the pharmacy model or into a primary care secondary care setting and since i brought up ai we are you know very closely covering ai regulation in the eu and uk so what do you make of the uk's ai guidance to drive medical technology innovation and what do you make of the ai regulation I think the the intrinsic challenge in that space is the lack of synchronization between innovators and regulators and and policymakers at the same time. So I think what we're still seeing, particularly what we, for example, have observed in radiology over the last few years, a lot of those developments, some of them in the clinic already would have been able to benefit from some of those frameworks coming out much sooner and and not in the last few years, opposed to six, seven years ago when the first of these companies started and the first products were were developed. It's a bit similar to where we are with large language models right now they sort of have been thrown out into a regulatory vacuum where we're now trying to catch up really 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 quickly i think all of the sensible approaches to regulation have to be very use case oriented i think like very broad sort of blanket style approaches to trying to build frameworks struggles to succeed because people don't really tailor these regulatory frameworks for very particular individual applications or use cases, which is where most likely some of the contentious areas arise, you know, when we look at different biases or in radiology, if we look at gender bias, for example, or, you know, in skin cancer detection, where there have been, you know, issues with skin color in the past, but not having any sort of framework that holds these innovators or companies accountable for how they best manage that and demonstrate externally that they, you know, live up to a certain standard or regulation. So I think in general, without being specific about the UK, understanding how they best um, adjust and go in parallel with what the innovative community is doing is pretty important. And I still think after having been in this space for many years, we're not entirely there yet on trying to figure out how everyone is on the same page at the right point in time. Well, Marcel, I'd just like to thank you again for coming on the podcast today and sharing your thoughts and insight. I think we've covered some very fascinating topics uh, connected with the Endesign product and with SiteEd itself. Yeah, thank you very much, Marcel. And thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Hannah. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to check out more podcasts from MedTech Insight, go to medtech.sightline.com and click on podcasts at the top of the page. Also check out Pharma Intelligence wherever you get your podcasts to find more podcasts from our sister publications. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more MedTech Connect episodes every month.